Hello, Steve. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Leanne. Thanks for having me back. Oh, honestly, uh, really my pleasure. And even more so now I know about the, well, I say topic. <laughs> we were just talking about, we don't actually know what to call the topic. Hopefully by the end of this, we will know. But um, yeah, I, I'm so delighted to be having this conversation with you. So we agreed that I would start by sharing why we're even having this conversation, which was off the back of our last episode together, I then went and listened to some episodes on your own podcast recommended by a friend. And he is really into magic as I am. And so particularly directed me to listen to some episodes with you and Daniel Ingram. And the particular ones I listened to were about magic. And I was listening thinking, Steve, you dark horse. I had no idea about this because it was so clear to me, like listening, like Steve is no innocent here. Like <laughs> he's not he's not asking questions from a place of like being clueless about this because he wouldn't be able to ask the question he's asking. So I was like, Steve must be into magic to be having this conversation. Oh, well, that's a, that's a whole nother like view on Steve that I just didn't have before. So again, we started exploring before we hit record and said like, how about we just talk about that? And so here we are talking about that. But the question that just occurred to me um, that I wanted to ask you before I hit record, and I was like, no, I'll save it, is you alluded to kind of almost like publicly being a muggle. And so is this is this an unusual conversation for you to have where you're kind of outing yourself? Like, how is is this something you wouldn't normally do? And how do you feel about that, if so? Well, I haven't outed myself yet. I think the, the muggle defense still holds. Yeah, I mean, it, I think in general, on uh, my podcast, which you, which you listen to, uh, Guru Viking podcast, uh, it's an interview podcast. So most of the time, I'm interviewing somebody else. Mm -hmm. And uh, as the interviewer, of course, it depends on the style of interview. You know, you're, you're we have more of a conversation, I think, in our last episode, that's a different style. That's a conversational style. But my my interview style on that podcast is not really conversational in the sense that I'm I'm sort of reflecting on what the guest has said and we have a two way. It sometimes goes that way, but pretty rare. I prefer just to mainly interrogate. I prefer to be the interrogator rather than interrogated. <laughs> so, uh, so I think it, it it's um, yeah. So I think uh, if you want um, creating the space of the openness or the vacuum as the questioner for the guest to film <clears throat> and is is the better way around yeah yeah so that's very interesting daniel ingram's an interesting guy actually an er doctor although he's retired now a retired er doctor perhaps your listeners will some of them will know who he is he became notorious for writing a book called mastering the core teachings of the buddha mm -hmm. uh, which i think the subtitle was an unusually hardcore dharma guide or something like this quite it's quite a tome and in that he claims to be, in fact, he signs it, Daniel Ingram, the Arhat. And the Arhat is uh, the fourth of four levels of enlightenment that one can achieve in the Buddhist school of the Theravada or the old school. Early, it's the sort of earliest form of Buddhism that still survives. And it survives in Southeast Asia, places like Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand, places like that. 
anyway, it's a big influence on the modern mindfulness movement that we see in America and, of course, also in, in the UK, in Europe, uh, with through people like Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that whole crew of people that came over. Uh, th those people actually sampled many different meditation styles, but their meditation approach heavily influenced by people like Goenka, Mahasya Sayadaw, and his successor Rupandita, and also very interesting figures like Deepama and, and Munindra. But anyway, that sort of style of uh, practice, that Theravada style, is quite uh, influential, I think. In that, in that style, there are, they have these four levels of enlightenment. St stream entry, the first one. And then once returner, you, something, some other things happen to you at that time. And sort of th these are four epiphanies or four completions of certain cycle of insights. Mm -hmm. The third one is a never returner. And the fourth is arhat. And arhat, uh, quite a high attainment. And traditionally, often, although this is a bit debatable, but certainly these days, one doesn't disclose such attainments. Mm. Uh, there are sort of rules against it. It's not done really. You can hint, you can you can hint by talking about things that only an arhat should know about, as if you have experienced them. But you, it's, you so you can indirectly hint, but and people do that. And if you know the code, you can hear people do that sort of thing, and they can they'll tell you where they are sometimes. In fact, one gets the feeling sometimes that they can't wait to tell you where they are. But that's another story. But uh, but anyway, he was quite notorious and controversial for announcing to everybody that he had considered himself to be an Arhat. And of course he had a lot of backlash, mm -hmm. a lot of, from the traditional, from certain traditional people and, and also um, secular meditation people, a lot of backlash. Who is this guy claiming this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that was some years ago, actually, but he's gone on to be a somewhat controversial figure um, because of that. Now, the odd thing about Daniel is that despite claiming to be uh, this level four kind of guy, he doesn't uh, do the usual things <laughs> that you'd imagine someone who's claiming enlightenment to do, like um, have many Rolls Royces and devotees, you know, chasing him around. He doesn't really have that guru thing going on. So he's a very interesting, a very interesting guy. And I've interviewed him several times on the podcast, actually. And he really is one of the pioneers of a pragmatic Dharma movement, as they call it, of people who are attempting to, you know, achieve these various different states and so on. But you know, I could go on, on about Daniel Ingram. He's a very interesting chap. And in that interview you're talking about, he reveals another of his interests, which is in uh, magic, Western occultism, and also Buddhist magic. Mm -hmm. Achieved through, the workings are done through, of course, various different rituals and symbols, but also through states of high concentration. So he, it seems a prerequisite to most Buddhist magic or, and the use of Siddhi and, and so on, at least in the streams that Daniel's experiments with, it's high states of Samadhi or high states of concentration. And he achieves that through staring at a candle flame for 14 hours a day for 10 days or so. <laughs> yeah, so it's very interesting. He's a very interesting guy and uh, he's very open talking about all these experiences he has, very open about his attainments, which he redefines slightly from the traditional attainments. Um, he, he, he limits what it means to be an Arhat compared to the traditional texts, which sometimes it's like quite supernatural almost and mm -hmm. remarkable. And he's criticized for that. 
Um, and he's he's sort of he's willing to experiment with all these different sorts of styles using his meditation horsepower to investigate Western occultism and uh, and in that interview, which is like two and a half hours long, I think, we go through different magical systems, and I ask him about his opinions on you know everything from Enochian to you know Gaussian magic to you name it. We I throw it at him yeah. <laughs> and see what he says, and because he's a very knowledgeable and guy and very good speaker. Uh, it's quite it's quite a fascinating conversation yeah mm. and you have deftly but i've noticed avoid answering the question um and i come back to the fact that in order for you to have asked the questions that you asked right you you, <laughs> you must have an understanding uh, appreciation worldview of magic yourself is my sense Oh, I think I've lost you. You've magically broken the internet, Steve. Hello. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I know my way out of this. Uh, <laughs> just kill the internet. I didn't touch anything. <laughs> okay. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. You said I must have an appreciation, you said. That's the last I thing said, I heard. I said, you know, I was leaving it open for you to define, but I said appreciation, uh, worldview, understanding of magic in order to be able to have the level of conversation you had with him and ask the questions you have. So what I would love to know is your experience of magic. Hmm. Well, yes, in order to have that sort of a conversation um, with him, uh, it did require some familiarity with different uh, magical ideas and systems and ways of thought. And, uh, I think like a lot of people, I've been always been very interested in uh, meditation-y uh, things, religious things even, actually, philosophical things, but also in uh, magic, um, as it's, magic is an integral part of the worldview of many cultures even today. Mm. Ours less so, I think, although it seems it was, it used to be, mm. a magical uh, way of viewing the world. And... Um, it, I think, has been criticized by a more scientific materialist mm. view, which I think is is at least one of the dominant views of our culture at this time. It's being, well, it's not based on anything. It's superstition. It's a way of explaining uh, things we don't understand. It's a way of um, relating to the uncertainty of the natural world and its precociousness, the weather changes, sicknesses come and go and so on. But, oh, it's because of the sky god of the thunder or, you know, it's, we must have upset the hill spirits or something like that. You know, it's a sort of a way of looking for patterns in a primitive kind of a way, mm -hmm. and which is superseded by science, you know. And I think there's, um, there's truth to that, actually. There's truth to that. Um, but i don't think magic is only a useful way of describing reality uh in a kind of it doesn't work really as a science i think as well as science does but it has other uses um in terms of symbol and meaning and ways of navigating the unknown uh, i think it has that interesting uh, and also touching areas of life that are subjective 
-hmm. and difficult to assess, at least at this point in science. So I think the ideal would be some kind of uh, ability to be both in that artistic imaginal realm and also in the logical rational realm mm -hmm. and for them to somehow be uh, together or at least to have an an interesting friction yeah mm -hmm. and in fact in, in, of course as you know uh, leanne but many cultures today still uh, emphasize magic as or if we think of magic i, I don't know how we, we could define it i mean crowley's definition of course is to do with you know make, making something happening by the force of your will and so on i mean that's a limited definition of magic i suppose it's a good one i think but also explaining things in terms of spirits and so on in tibetan medicine for example which is still practiced widely the four uh, causes of uh illness or d disturbance of the humors which is what how they explain illness is uh bad diet bad lifestyle okay so so far uh i think we you know science can agree um seasonal change also which is said to affect the humors and then the fourth is provocations Ooh. or dun. <laughs> dun is what they call them. You know, upsetting the nagas or the spirits or something like that, or even perhaps being cursed or possessed, actually, or oppressed by spiritual forces or spiritual people. That's very interesting indeed. And that same idea, a book that I read early on, which which was very interesting to me, is have you, I'm sure you've read Dion Fortune's um, Psychic Self-Defense. Yes. So interesting. <laughs> so that I'm very interested historically in that whole period, Dion Fortune, those sorts of people, the emergence of science and industrial industrial kind of emergence alongside this contact with the East, um, the Theosophical Society and all that sort of thing, along with a sort of revival of pagan or Western esoteric ideas, this very interesting mix um, that was going on in Britain and Germany and other places like that. I, I find that a very fascinating period of time. And um, the sorts of things that th those people can say at that time in their, at that time of history, I think are very amazing. Mm -hmm. They can talk very magically on the one hand with totally straight face. And, and on the other hand, engage in science and, and, and so on. It's very fascinating. What do you think? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Oh, I love so much what you, you uh, said. I'll start with <laughs> what you just said. And then there's something you said at the beginning that I want to uh, come to as well. So yeah, I find it fascinating how when we look back at some of the most um, prominent and recognized thinkers of the past, you know, scientists and um, economists, they often had a now, I don't think it was secret at the time. I think you're saying they were actually, you know, fairly out there with it. But now it's become this secret part of them where it's not known that actually they were practicing magicians as well as being scientists or something. And there wasn't, it didn't seem like that was a dichotomy then. And uh, that for me is something that I often think it's easy to see that and think, oh, it's just because they didn't know as much as we do now. But I actually feel there's something more going on there. There's a there's an openness to something beyond the known that really served them. Um, that, as you say, culturally, we've kind of got clung so much to the known that can be proven by science. We've lost the ability to explore in the unknown. Um, 
So I, I love what you've just said there. The thing that really hit me, and I love the way you said this, was the way that we can see the, uh, culturally going from this or as a, as a species, going from a kind of magical worldview where we ex- use magic to explore what's happening in the world. And then, then we can think, okay, then we got science. <laughs> so we got rid of that and we don't need magic anymore. And as you, the way you said it, I was like, oh my goodness, yes. It's so clear how we just threw the baby out with the bathwater and didn't recognize there's aspects of life where magic is deeply serving and doesn't need to even be, I don't think, in conflict with what we can measure scientifically. Again, for me, it's more comes back to what I was saying. It just falls in what we can't currently measure with science or report on with science. It feels to me it's much more in that realm and recognizing there are right now limitations to what we're able to understand. The other thing I was um, hearing in what you said was the ah that was it 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 was actually when you were talking about uh, Crowley's definition of magic actually what popped into my mind was Daniel Ingram's and it's something like I I may have this wrong you'll probably remember I think he is like consciousness plus intention I think he defines it as which I think is awesome I love that and it's kind of like and that in itself opens up this whole well given how little we can actually even like determine what the hell consciousness is with science it may suggest that we have got some limitations in in terms of trying to use science as the answer to understand all of this yes i think many scientists agree actually yes of course yeah i think most do actually don't they (laughs) i mean it's yeah i think it's like the hard problem isn't it for for good reason so that itself says a lot yeah I think you're right. And if we think of magic, um, you know, to me, to me, I think, I mean, to me, you know, uh, for whatever my opinion's worth, you know, but to me, uh, magic can be associated with making things happen through means that are not sort of conjuring uh, a relationship or uh, manifesting a job opportunity, things like that, some kind of working cheat code, if you like, with um, the universe somehow to get things to happen that, you know, I suppose, round the back door sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, and I think uh, that's interesting. To me, that that's never particularly interested me. Um, I think uh, when one gets something through the back door, um there's uh things can happen in mysterious ways but when one pushes for something through if you want uh backdoor means uh, then um what are you going to do with it when you've got it how can you hold it if you don't have that structure and of course that's one aspect of magic the other aspect of magic the great work as they sometimes call it isn't it is the is one's own apotheosis or something like that you know but once again, you know, um, in other words, one sees it as a sort of spiritual quest, right, of refinement of the individual or something like that. It can even be more Taoist in that sense, I think. Mm-hmm. I think a, a magic also, the lens of magic is interesting lens to listen with, I think. 
Mm. Yes. That's interesting to, to stop and listen. For example, tarot cards, if you think about those, right? Of course, what, we, there are many ways to think about them, but one way to think about, say, like, say tarot cards, that's just an obvious example that everyone's heard of, is it forces you to stop and take a different perspective. So you pull a card and you know, maybe you're thinking about a situation or whatever the case is, and you pull a card out and it has associations. Whether you know the associations or not, you make associations. And then you say, okay, well, let me put myself in the, let me see the, the situation from this perspective. It helps you get out of your own perspective and see things from a different angle. So whether there's any magic to that in the sense of uh, the, the cards are psychically, you know, producing something or they're showing you the future because of some, I think that's not so relevant at the level of, it can be used as a way of seeing things differently. Mm. Or if you're sensitive to, I interviewed somebody else, um, this Australian couple, amazing. I think one of the first three or four episodes I did, and they spent a lot of time with the Aboriginal people of Australia, a uh, long time with them. And a lot of, they talked a lot about dream time and the way that even today, this couple, uh, are they listen to the birds and they notice the birds and they, they're able to somehow by recognizing certain birds appearing at certain times, they told me some stories in the interview of certain birds, war, a warning bird coming when something bad was going to happen, things like that. They've sensitized to the mm -hmm. animal signs as they're sometimes called. I think that's interesting. Do, now, does it matter if the animal is actually, you know, independent of your own imagination, giving you a sign? Uh, well, not necessarily. If you're willing to hold the magical view as a lens rather than taking it as an absolute fact, then it can at least give you the opportunity to stop and think, oh, I've seen this thing. I've seen this animal uh, doing something unusual. Uh, I could give some examples, I suppose. But And then you say, stop reevaluate the day hang on a moment this is strange what's going on mm -hmm. actually um let me rethink what i'm doing let me just double check that i'm not automatically through the force of habit and unconsciousness walking into a situation that i i should think twice about mm -hmm. they have that in uh, dream yoga actually when you learn to lucid dream mm -hmm. when you notice something like a glitch in the matrix they they often they ask you to do a reality check in the daytime so because the problem with dreams is you you see strange things, you know, you're I, I, I dreamt not so long ago that I was taking a uh, speedboat to an island off New York to meet Joe Pesci at his mansion. <laughs> now, yeah, so obviously to me at the time that seemed perfectly normal and perfectly fine. I, I, it was very strange, but I didn't notice how strange it was. Right. And so one of the things that they do to train you to uh, notice that you're dreaming when you're dreaming, lucid dreaming is when you go around your life and something weird happens or some weird coincidence happens or some, some, something unusual or odd, you do a reality check. So you get in the habit of noticing strange things mm. and checking if you're dreaming. So they'll do things like you pull your finger because apparently in your dreaming that it goes long or you move your hand back and forth like that and see if your fingers remain the same number as they are, you know, consistently. Apparently that changes in the dream. Various other things you can do. So it's a sort of... Uh, cause you to stop and think and ponder. And of course, in the spiritual application of dream yoga, it the, the sense in which one believes the dream to be real, here I am going out to meet Joe Pesci, is correlated to the ways in which I take many of the appearances of my life to be real also. Mm. I make many assumptions about life. 
about who I am, what's going on, the nature of reality. Many of these assumptions in these sorts of traditions are said to be um, mistaken. So, of course, isn't that what we do with spiritual investigation? You know, we, we have these epiphanies uh, and so on. See through our assumptions, right? So the idea is that if you get good at recognizing you're dreaming when you're dreaming, then we can wake up also in the in the dream of illusion that is this waking life also. So I think it's so fascinating, all these sorts of ideas. So there, I think it's magic, if we think of it like that. It's a, it's a listening. It could be a listening tool or a tool of um, waking up, mm. uh, sobering up, uh, that sort of idea. Magic as a tool of clarity and waking up and sobriety and listening. How does that make sense? Surely, if you engage in magic, you're going to become irrational, superstitious, and et cetera, et cetera. Yes, that can happen too. <laughs> that can happen too. <laughs> that definitely can be. Uh... A shadow, actually, of of yeah. magic. The um the thing that really hit me as I started to more consciously, like my journey into magic, initially wasn't um wasn't a conscious choosing, and then as it became a conscious choosing, I was looking around at people who were kind of you know out there as uh, magical practitioners. And it really hit me how, in the main, they appeared to be some of the most um, intelligent, conscious and rational people out there. And I was like, that's a surprise. That is not what I was expecting to see out there at all. Um, but I think it's for the very, very reason you've said that um, used in the way that you're describing, it is indeed a tool for sobering up, waking up seeing things um more as they actually are which is strangely kind of more magical as in we don't we stop believing that something is as we see it is and we start to see it filled with the i guess all of the possibility and wonder and um not of the material <laughs> that it actually is um and so i love what you've said there there is it's kind of the opposite i think of what people might think a sort of worldview of magic could actually lead to yeah access to the imaginal mm. and the creative aspects also this is another isn't it possible mm. dimension if we if we take magic to be a very broad definition yeah, I think it's so fascinating. And talking to people as I do on my podcast from all kinds of, it's focused on sort of contemplative stuff, um, spiritual stuff, you could say. Not a lot of magic, although it does come up a lot because, you know, you might think of Buddhism as a rather, one might think of Buddhism as a rather dry, austere kind of religion. And in some ways, it does have that aspect. But, you know, you can't really go five minutes without discovering siddhis yes. these special powers, and all these flying you know siddhas and gantapa and all this sort of thing and the buddha even himself doing all these sorts of strange things so even the sort of what one would imagine to be as it's sometimes presented as you know a philosophy of mind or a science of the mind buddhism is sometimes presented as that i think wrongly but um nonetheless it's got a lot of magic in it too mm -hmm. so d despite despite that uh, I don't try to emphasize it it's exactly. I'm not sort of pursuing it 
in my interviews it often comes up <laughs> yes yes oh, I love that it's fascinating actually I read um uh, do you know Dean Radin he's been on the show but he's written several books about magic uh he wrote one I can't remember the name of it that it was about that actual topic and how it um in those traditions where cities are a kind of known thing they're also seen and I think you and Daniel Ingram spoke about this as well they're kind of like they're known but we're not going to focus on them they're kind of almost like a byproduct like we're not going to make them the point of this um but I think that can go so far the other way where it's almost like it's not even a thing and let's just pretend it doesn't exist um where as you say to the mainstream view on say Buddhism you just would have no idea that magic was part of the tradition yeah Mm. And, and magic, you know, is such a part of our our culture. Having I said it wasn't, but now if, now if we take another angle on it, you know, the positive thinking movement, mm. the idea of the unconscious, uh, everything from affirmations to limiting beliefs and so on and so forth. Um, one's one's view uh, and assumptions affect one's perception. If I go in, through life expecting people to you know, just reject me or think I'm not very good or something, then I'll interpret a wide range of things uh, that way that are not that way. You know, mm. someone uh, blanks me in the street and I think, gosh, see, there's further evidence of my insignificance. But maybe they just didn't see me. Maybe they're wrapped up in something of their own and they didn't see me. And so, et cetera, et cetera. So the, all these sorts of subjective, this subjective area of positive psychology and, uh, of course, then therefore self-help, etc. Uh, even counselling and psych psychotherapy, I think, mm -hmm. has magical aspects to it. Intention, will, even the words you choose to use. Of course, this is a, a great magical idea, isn't it? The power of words and language to shape reality, or at the very least, influence your experience of reality. And the way you exp carry yourself affects the way people treat you, and etc., etc. I mean, there's so many layers of of that. Is that magic? Well, from a certain point of view, you could think of it like that. Because in most magical systems, there's the first trainings are in one's containment of oneself, isn't it? Where are the leaks? How are you using your words? How do you use your thoughts? You know, your your discipline of your life and routines and so on, and the way you interact, noticing uh, the, the, these sorts of things plucking the leaks right yes seems yes. to be a common thing now of course <laughs> they talk about ectoplasm or chi or prana you know, they, they have a way of, set, of talking about it but on another level from a purely psychological level you know i think it's an interesting idea and of course the mainline religions that still exist today are full of <laughs> magical things yes yes <laughs> so it's it's sort of everywhere and nowhere at the same time i think um really and that's a, and that's 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 typical i think of magic and it's good to have that view to be able to completely um have that light touch with it that's that allows one to engage with it as one would a game of imagination uh but and be open to that listening to that creative imaginal intuitive realm uh, but on the other hand without concretizing it Hmm. which is the domain of, of, of science I think perhaps concretizing it becomes I think at that time limiting it loses what it's there for this sort of other perspective perhaps 
I mean, I must say, I don't know if this is a tremendously coherent idea. It's just, we're just musing, right? Well, at least I'm musing. You seem to have more coherence. <laughs> how, do you, how do you use magic? How do you think of it? You're, you said to me before that you're heavily involved in shamanism, but I'm very curious. You said that your initial contact with magic was not by choice, and then you pursued it deliberately. Could you perhaps recount that story if you haven't already? I can. Um, I just want to quickly come to something you said then about um, where it's kind of ma magic's actually kind of infused everywhere without us ne not necessarily recognizing it. And um, what may that made me think of is how we see things like psychotherapy more as a science culturally like if someone's to know well they think it's actually you know there's something very psych like it's psychological and um you know like Jung for example who's probably you know one of the godfathers of psychotherapy so much of his work was influenced by shamanism and of course you know just in the way that you talked about it, it's actually like you know more magic than anything else and yet we've just because of the way we've named it and structured it, it that's um out of view a lot of the time so I just thought that was such a great example of how even the people who think they are really divorced from magic are often you know using systems that are you know come directly from magic um yes and perhaps perhaps I could say even medicine mm. the, the healing power of a good by bedside manner what is yes. that? Yeah, we don't really understand it. Now, of course, we, we, we know it works, but we don't really understand it. What about the placebo effect? What about the power of positive thinking in aiding the healing? Or if you like, what happens if you're determined to die, uh, no matter what treatment they throw at you? Mm. I, I think often people turn to that sort of, they say, okay, I've got cancer, or okay, I've got whatever it might be. And I, I know many people that they, it's, that they advocate this sort of full participation at every level of the patient's being in the recovery process seems to have seems to have some sort of effect you know mm -hmm. how repeatable is that in studies i think it's rather mysterious rupert sheldrake of course mm -hmm. who everyone knows i expect uh, speaks a lot about this sort of idea yeah. and um, it is baffling it's well beyond my pay grade i must say intellectually but what i have gleaned from it is that there's an awful lot we don't understand um even in the realms, the hardest realms of science, such as medicine and, um, mm -hmm. you know, well, of course, <laughs> now we can go all deep back chopper on it, uh, quantum mechanics, you know, physics. <laughs> it's really confusing. I have some physicist friends, they're extremely intelligent. And uh, they are insist that it's mostly mystery. <laughs> <laughs> and they should know. That's amazing. Now, it's not to say that it can't be understood, but it is to say that, gosh, there's so much mystery there. I think mystery is the realm of magic. Yes, yes. I was about to say, aka magic, really. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, I'll give you a very uh, Cliff's Notes version of how I ended up uh, involved in magic. So I guess the bit that I probably do need to say is it seems looking back that I was kind of always wired for magic as much as I really didn't want to be so I've always had um it was funny actually I was, I was interviewed um a chap who is is a researcher of psychedelics probably the best way to describe so he's a science guy and his work is around psychedelics plant medicines things like that 
And as I was sharing my experiences with him, he said, oh, yeah. So what I would say is like, you've just got a naturally psychedelic mind. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> I'm kind of glad that I finally had that diagnosis. So that really is my experience. I used to have hallucinations and uh, disassociative episodes and all sorts of strange things that kind of were happening for me, which I really um, hated, was terrified by. What did you hallucinate? Um, oh my goodness, all sorts of this. It started happening when I was um, a teenager and typically it would be like a hypnagogic or hypnopompic one where I'd be woken from sleep and then have a really, like it was literally in the room happening. Like I'd be wide awake, eyes open. And then um, the first one that ever happened was my father had come, come in uh, late at night, woke me up, and I looked and saw all the, like as teenagers, had posters on my walls, and all the posters were kind of like shuffling around on my walls. So I sat up in bed, started screaming my lungs out. And so my, my poor father must have been like, what's happening? She's being killed, like ran through the bedroom uh, door, like, Lee, Lee, you okay? And I was like, look, look, look at my posters. And that was the first time it was just like, okay, he's not seeing what I'm seeing here. Um, and then from then on, I had them really regularly. And uh, I say it was terrified because it was, I seemed to not be able to have the ability when they were happening to know that was what was happening. As far as I was concerned, it was happening. And it, there were typically things that shouldn't be happening, if you know what I mean. Um, and that was something that became uh, increasingly uh, a challenge for me about four years ago, where I started having those about four times a week, which was really disruptive because, you know, I'd wake up, be absolutely terrified, wake my husband up, kind of like then eventually would realize it was hallucination. And then I like, have to kind of like calm myself down to be able to get back to sleep. So it, I then had a conversation with a shaman who was saying, it seems like you have this kind of opening, I don't know how she, like a sort of sensitivity opening to spirit that's kind of like trying to get its way in, but the only way it can do is when you're kind of asleep, therefore you don't have your defenses up. If you consciously choose to open to it, chances are it won't have to keep coming through this way. And I was like, I don't really like the sound of that. That sounds like kind of being chased out of the village with pitchforks territory, but I'm desperate at this point. So that was the kind of first very tentative step towards consciously opening to it. And the fact that worked, as in I went from having like four of those a week to a couple of a couple of year, literally, you know, just after that conversation said to me, there's something in this. I don't really understand what's just happened by me literally just agreeing to be open to this. But mm. something has clearly shifted. Um. And then I'm trying to like think of like key important points because there's lots of details I could share that are going to make this really long-winded. But a, over the last few years, and I think it was linked to this, I began practices that you could describe as, could describe as, I guess, like the nature-based path of soul and connecting to the wild, I guess, in a more like animist way. I wasn't necessarily thinking it is definitely that, but it just felt that that was something that made sense to me. So uh, spending a lot of time with an oak tree and I guess communing with the oak tree. And so started to recognize how 
um, in the way that you talked about, about the, the couple with the birds, how that felt like a conversation that was real to me, that was happening. Um, I can feel the emotion rising because it's, it's something that, um, I don't seem to have, to have the ability to talk about in a kind of um, purely kind of like logical way, like it, it really has been. Um, <laughs> and still is a very profound um, opening. And it wasn't like I needed to label that. It wasn't like I was thinking, you know, this is, um, you know, it wasn't magic as far as I'm concerned. It certainly wasn't shamanism. It wasn't anything. It was just the experience I was having. Then the um, way that was speaking to me um, became increasingly clear to the point where I had this clear message to train in shamanism, which was so unwelcome. It was not something I wanted to do at all. But the, the way that I, I kept being told this was kind of increasingly insistent um which is the whole story in itself but anyway that's what took me onto the path firstly of shamanism and then I started to recognize like okay I guess this is magic <laughs> like <laughs> I suppose it is magic and then then I became more open to other forms of magic so it was kind of like I say I kind of like weaved my way here and then it was only very recently um, at the beginning that I had this theory for years, Jonathan, my business partner, and I had this theory that we used to sometimes talk about, about neurodivergences and being more wired for spirit stroke magic. And then early this year, I was diagnosed with autism. And then literally a week afterwards, found out that um, the autistic brain has a hypermetabolism of DMT, which I'm sure you know is the spirit molecule. And it was like suddenly, oh, the psychedelic mind now all makes sense. And so, yeah, hey, turns out I was wired for magic all along. It's just taken me a hell of a long time to get to the point where I am consciously choosing that. Well, wow, that's very interesting. Such a cliff notes. That was. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, hope that answers your question. It does. Might I ask you then um, a bit about that? Yes, of course. So if you had that proclivity, when you started to get involved in shamanism, a, a more structured uh, path, I suppose, than having, you know, nothing at all um, other than your own intuition. Mm -hmm. And then you said you also got involved in other magical systems. I'd be interested in what they are. But have you, how, how do you now relate to that proclivity? Uh, are you able to, do you attempt to control it? Or do you understand it better? Do you direct it towards things? Or um, are you just open to when it sort of emerges uh, or, or comes out? And how does it do so, if so? So I'm curious how you relate to that, um, how entering training and then coming to the point you are now, how you relate to that proclivity, which before was showing up at unwelcome random times when you're waking up uh, in the middle of the night and so on um you've turned towards it it seems and then the second after your conversation with the shaman and then the second step or a further step was this training aspect so how did it evolve at that point mm, so the quote that i mentioned earlier of uh, Dan daniel ingram just popped into my mind how 
it feels to me that the it's the intention part of it that's really shifted in that it was very unintentional it was just like my mind seemed to want to work that way um and then other aspects of me really didn't want it to work that way and so there was like no intention other than like kind of do my what I could to shut it down whereas now there is uh definitely the intention that um yeah kind of directing it it when it's appropriate when it's serving when it's beneficial um which has meant there's almost no I'm not saying it's entirely but almost no times now where it happens in unwelcome ways so that's been the kind of real shift in that um so how I might intentionally use it would be I don't know for example um journeying like shamanic journeying um I guess more intentionally um asking and listening for an intuitive sense or speaking to my guides so all things that just would have sounded like just nonsense not that long ago like I would have heard someone else saying the things I've just said and just thought how ridiculous <laughs> quite frankly <laughs> um, so um yeah there's there's really a, an in and I think that was also me getting over myself there was a kind of a lot of judgment I had about these things like oh that's just woo that's just delusional and it's not to say there isn't aspects of this that can be but I guess over time um direct experience has, has shown me that you know whilst I agree with you there is a, like a kind of aspect of this that is um unknown imaginal there's also things that have happened that I'm like there is something also happening that is beyond anything I can explain rationally. And I needed to be able to have those experiences to be able to say, okay, it's, there's something, there's a there there. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And so you've learned in your shamanic training then to journey um, and encounter guides uh, and entities of various sorts. Mm. And, you know, this is an ongoing training, um, but already it's it's really helped, I guess, contextualize things that are just happening naturally and bring a sense of, like you say, structure and intention to things were kind of were just happening. The experience that I had prior to that in nature, I can see now, weren't really that different. I mean, it was it was lovely how I'm probably going to get emotional again. Um, because the relationship I had with the oak tree had been so profound for me. Mm. Um, my very first, um, my very first day of shamanic training, what we were asked to do was go and go out into this, it's held in, in some woods. I was to go out and find a tree. And I was just like, oh, I'm home. These are my people. This is, this is my work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was kind of like, um, putting um some understanding around things that were just had already been my life and my work without me really consciously recognizing it was gosh yeah that's remarkable did you have any um as is sometimes said to be the case with people with that kind of proclivity any uh great illness or um tragedy yes it's it's, it's funny because i think i'm 
um, I don't know how to describe it. Like naturally, I'm like Pollyanna with rose tinted glasses. So it's funny because like, I probably had most kinds of trauma happen to me that you can name, but mm. I don't really experience myself as that. Mm. Um, um, like one, the probably the, and I can see now how, you know, it, it's often talked about as like shamanic sickness in, shamanic, right. you know, where it's like known that that's needed to kind of break you open. And for me, probably the biggest example is that I had um, uh, like a traumatic incident happen where uh, I was attacked, basically uh, beaten up and sexually assaulted. And for 15 years after that, I had, um, chronic facial pain and panic attacks and I can see now that that was that for me and the interesting thing was the resolution of that happened with my father dying suddenly and it was the day after he died it's like the opening happened where it was kind of like that led to a whole series of events that kind of led me to where I'm now look back and you know that kind of classic join the dots backwards um, but I can see all of that was necessary to bring me to where I am. Hmm. Very interesting. Hmm. This has ended up becoming you interview me, which is not fair, Steve. <laughs> that was not the idea of this. <laughs> the old twitcheroo. <laughs> yes, you are such a natural interrogator. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so, remarkable. Um, bringing bring ourselves back to um, what this the intention of this uh, we've been talking for quite some time as well. Where should we go now? Where should how should we bring this to some semblance of an ending to the, the conversation? I think we probably need to have another episode talk about something else as well. In my sense, it feels like we've still got so much to talk about. But what occurs to you as, I guess something that you feel could be uh, helpful to listeners of interest to listeners if they perhaps want to take a step towards sorry my dog's at the door as well <laughs> um, a more again like magical um lens a way of listening magically as you described it hmm. well actually i would um, i'll happily answer that but i think perhaps i would be curious what you would say to somebody who you are not getting away with that again we're not doing that okay well <laughs> after your story it just seems natural to, to to say something reflective on it but okay if if you insist um i would i think What advice or suggestion would I have for somebody to access that? Yeah. Let me think. What's the best way of saying it? Like I said, this pausing and this listening. It seems to be a sensitizing. Oh, your dog's come back in now. <laughs> Seems to be a sensitizing to that dimension. Uh, I'm still recovering from uh, 
from your story. Very, it was very interesting indeed. Let me think. How to say? Well, I think it's hard to say exactly. Um, I think to follow the pull the thread of one's uh, questioning. That's quite interesting. Or to uh, look outside at something long enough to see it not primarily through its relationship to you. Very often, I think, we, we, we go out and we see things. It's very much related to us. The tree is over there. And it's only over there because I'm over here. So still one's very much self-referenced. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. That's fine. You have to be somewhere after all. But if you sit for long enough, and it doesn't, that, for different people, that's, if you're a little bit hard-headed like I can be, then it can take some time. But some people are more, get it more quickly, is to look at nature and observe it. For, this is one way, for example, that comes to me. Um, on its own terms, when you're talking about this connection with the oak tree, and you have difficulty putting it into words and difficulty uh, concretizing it in language, like the sort of language we speak. Yeah, because, of course, trees don't talk in English language. <laughs> but there is um, some life in a tree, and there is some character there, and there is some uh, relationship or interactivity that can be happened if you can relate on that level with with a tree, for example. And how do you really get to know somebody in any relationship, dating or whatever the case might be, or a friend? Such a relationship really begins to deepen when you begin to see the person who they are, not rather just seeing them always as an instrument, instrumentally. Oh, this is an attractive person. I like them because I feel good around them. It's still self-referenced so when you begin to see ah, i see you i see more about you and you get see a bit beyond yourself that i think is when human relationships also can become a bit deeper and uh and also more rich and interesting people become much more interesting when you get to know them who for who they are rather than limit your relationship to them based on uh how you feel around them or what you're going to say to them or, you know, this sort of self-referential thing. Wow. This person's so much more interesting than I realized because you're not limited by your own filter. Mm. Uh, maybe something like that. I'm kind of groping around, but I think that's an idea in nature, for example, to look at the water and uh, rather than seeing it as something that could make you wet or that you could drink, just pond seeing it and then going beyond um, yourself or relaxing eventually that self, that self, um, self-referential reflex can relax and one can open up into a different sort of contact with uh, say nature or the environment. People do that, don't they, with uh, vision quests and so on. But uh, I don't think one needs to necessarily be so performative and grand as that, although um, vision quests are of course wonderful, but just as simple. It's there in the nature, yes. what I'm saying, or in, indeed in a person, but it's so, so, so much harder I think to do that with a person. But it's there in the nature and uh, you don't have to necessarily conjure it from a cauldron <laughs> or something yeah. it's there in the nature at least the an access point and begin to um and then say well it's difficult to express it's difficult to formulate yes it is poets and mystics and uh artists have attempted to hint at it or point at it through art 
but it can't really be bottled and captured in that kind of framework as, as you so demonstrated when you tried to talk about the oak tree and you communicated it but you, you couldn't say something about it but it still came across so i think uh an attempt to investigate nature on its own you know uh, uh, from its own point of view or at least to see a little bit beyond one's own self could perhaps be a first step I don't think you could have uh, articulated that better, Steve. It was so, it's so captured um, in the words that I didn't have, the way the oak tree and uh, more recently the rose, actually. I always keep um, a rose on my desk now because I'm in a, in a similar practice with the rose. And for me, the way you just spoke was, and again, I did this, intuitively it wasn't like I knew this was the way but it really was a pro process of becoming the oak tree rather than seeing it through my eyes and it it was like becoming it um knowing myself as the tree and the experience of the tree and uh yeah for me that's and I, I so agree with you you know we through our work we take people on a one of the spectrum vision quests on the other end, you know, one of the practices we invite all our clients into is simply having a sit spot or finding a special tree. It really can be something or having a rose on your desk. <laughs> you know, it really can be really simple portals to this way of being. Yeah. Thank you so much. That just absolutely I loved our conversation, even if you are terribly naughty and don't want me to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> I will forgive you because it has been a gorgeous conversation. Where can people find out more about you and your wonderful work, Steve? Uh, guruviking.com, www.guruviking.com. That's also where the podcast is that you mentioned. Um, you can just search YouTube for Guru Viking and it's all there. If you want to hear more of Steve interviewing someone, <laughs> I suggest you go there. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.